Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. that turns on the most outrageous team in football. The Mean Machine, supercharged and power-driven to the longest yard. Burt Reynolds, the quarterback who will tackle anything. You have a driver's license? Yeah, look what we got here, a miniature cop. <laughs> the Superstar. I feel so good. Me. The stud. <laughs> the all-American. The all-amazing. A joker of a jock who laughed all the way to prison. Paul Crew. The wrecking crew. <laughs> Anybody who is pro football's most valuable player has got something special. Jim, do it standing up. Let's move it. Never take a lot serious. A hero so special, he gets special treatment. They'll put you in the oven. Rise and shine. Oh. It's room service. <laughs> How do you like the apples? Superstar. Shaving points off of a football game, man. That's an American. Football faggot. <laughs> Get you 24 hours in a hot box, boy. I quit. <laughs> My God, what the hell is that? That's a member of the Warden football team. And I run a football team. What football team? My football team. He assembled the meanest, dirtiest team in history. Uh, we're getting up a football game against the guards. With the guards? Yeah, I want to play. I'm going to play football. And taught them how to be meaner. The one thing that you're going to have to remember is to protect your quarterback. Me. Go! Get him And dirtier. I think he broke his neck. I think he broke his neck. I told you I broke his Before this game is over, I want every prisoner in this institution to know what I mean by power. And who controls it? The prison guards against the prisoners they guarded. The game that broke all the rules, all the records, all the bones. The most incredible ever played. On the field and off. You're going to lose the game. And I want a 21-point spread. We've come too far together to stop now. Let's do it. From the producer of The Godfather. From the director of The Dirty Dozen. From the first second to the last, the mean machine means it. Burt Reynolds, Eddie Albert, 
the wildest yet. The longest yard. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Longest Yard from 1974, the original and the best. The studio was United Artists. The release date was August 30th, 1974, with a running time of 121 minutes, and it was rated R. The budget, $3 million, and the box office took in $43 million, making it the ninth-ranked movie of 1974. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 79% fresh from 34 reviews. Their critics' consensus is equal parts tough and funny and led by a perfectly cast Burt Reynolds. The Longest Yard has an interesting political subtext and an excellent climax, even if it takes too long to get there. I totally disagree about that. Now, I remember when my dad rented this for me when I was about 8 or 9 years old. He was telling me this was the best football movie ever, especially at the time. And I was a huge football fan. I love the San Francisco 49ers, and especially my hero, Joe Montana. So any sort of football movie was exciting to me. Speaking of Joe Montana, as I'm recording this in 2022, uh, there's a terrific documentary, a six-part documentary on the Peacock Network about Joe Montana. So if, even if you're not a San Francisco 49er fan, you would still really enjoy this as a football fan and just all the history and, and hearing about his story and arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. Now, the great part about The Longest Yard is the number of ex-NFL stars that appear in the movie. Most notably, Hall of Famer Ray Nitschke, who was on the Packers, and Joe Capp, who was on the Vikings. And even Burt Reynolds was a fine athlete. He played college football for Florida State. Let's get into the main cast. Speaking of Burt Reynolds, he plays Paul Crew. This film is a star-making vehicle. And while the supporting cast is excellent, without Reynolds, the film simply wouldn't work. Re Reynolds' career began in the late 1950s. He appeared predominantly on TV shows, but his breakout role was in 1972 for Deliverance. The next year, he had another hit with White Lightning, and then next was The Longest Yard. Eddie Albert plays Warden Hazen. So while Reynolds was a rising star, the big name in this film before it was released was Eddie Albert. Now, I covered Albert's early career in the episode where I covered... Roman Holiday with Gregory Peck and, of course, Audrey Hepburn. From that film until The Longest Yard, his best-known films included Oklahoma, The Longest Day, Captain Newman, M.D., and the original Heartbreak Kid. He was also very successful on television, most notably the show Green Acres. The director, Robert Aldrich. Now, Aldrich started in Hollywood in the early 1940s as an assistant director. In the early 1950s, he got a chance to direct TV shows, and by the mid-1950s, was directing feature films. His best-known films prior to The Longest Yard were Kiss Me Deadly, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, and The Dirty Dozen. And he was portrayed by Alfred Merlina in the miniseries called Feud, Betty and Joan, in 2017, about the making of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which was really well done. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So producer Albert S. Ruddy, he had produced The Godfather prior to The Longest Yard. Ruddy had a very good friend from his days at USC, who also happened to be one of the wealthiest women in America at the time. She ended up marrying an all-American college football player who was a high draft pick in the NFL. However, after his first season, everything came crashing down after he suffered a serious knee injury, and his playing career was essentially over after that. So Ruddy ended up running into the couple at a men's store, and he ended up talking to his female friend. And her husband is trying on these different tweed jackets and asks her which of the three colors he should pick. And she replied, take all three, because when I kick you out, you'll need them. <laughs> 
After this run-in, Ruddy got to thinking about a script idea about this premise of this male character, which was essentially the beginning scenes of The Longest Yard. The film was the one last chance for this character to find dignity and redemption for himself. However, it was an uphill battle to get the film made because at the time, sports movies were the kiss of death to studios. Nobody wanted to make them for a few key reasons. One, they felt that audiences already got the real thing, meaning live sports, free on television. So why pay for a film that likely won't even look authentic? The other theory of why sports movies weren't successful to the film studios was that women wouldn't go see sports films. But both theories ended up being completely wrong in the case of The Longest Yard. Even though the initial premise of The Longest Yard came from Albert Ruddy, Tracy Keenan Wynn wrote the screenplay. Wynn is the son of the great character actor Keenan Wynn. So Ruddy pitched the story idea to Burt Reynolds verbally, and Reynolds loved it. Next was getting Robert Aldrich to direct. Aldrich was a football junkie, and part of the reason the football scenes are so authentic in the film is in part due to his love of the game. Burt Reynolds tells one story about his early meetings with Aldrich, where Reynolds asks if they would actually be hitting for real during the game scenes. Aldrich then told Reynolds that one of the defensive linemen signed up for the film was Ray Nitschke, who had just retired from the Green Bay Packers the year before the movie was filmed. And if you didn't know, Nitschke was one of the meanest and toughest linebackers in NFL history. Aldrich said that Nitschke would be playing the part of kill the actor, meaning Burt Reynolds. <laughs> Reynolds tells another story about filming a play where he runs a bootleg and the guys tackle him and drive him into the ground near the sideline. And Nitschke comes up to the defenders and says very slowly and dryly, don't hurt him. And Reynolds is feeling happy after that, thinking, oh, well, I'm the star. And then the next second, Nitschke says, that's my job. <laughs> Nitschke, like the Hall of Famer he was, told Reynolds offset about all of the tells he was doing when he was underneath the center calling signals as a quarterback. Like if Reynolds looked to one particular side, he knew that Reynolds would run the ball. Or if Reynolds looked directly at the receiver, well, Nitschke knew that he was throwing to him. Or if he stayed close to the center before snapping, he was going to drop back to pass and stay in the pocket. Only a professional would recognize these tips with ease. Reynolds and Ruddy had so many great Nitschke stories. The first time Ruddy met Nitschke before filming was at a studio party. And when he introduced himself to Nitschke, Nitschke took a glass of beer he had in his hand and put it on the top of his head. <laughs> He was completely bald, and then shook Ruddy's hand. He was beyond intimidating, according to Ruddy. Reynolds asked Nitschke about his broken nose, and who would have had the guts to break his nose playing football. And Nitschke casually said it wasn't from a game, but from a barroom fight. The bartender hit him with a blackjack. Reynolds then asked what he did after that. Nitschke casually said that he threw the guy through a plate glass window. <laughs> Reynolds was absolutely perfect for the part of Paul Crewe, because if a serious actor who didn't have the charm and sense of humor that Reynolds had in his acting was to play this part, it, this would not have been a funny movie. It would have failed miserably. Reynolds was able to make the words on page turn into something that even the writers couldn't have dreamed of. The other key was Reynolds' natural athletic ability, as he did play running back for Florida State. But much like the character in the film, he injured his knee and was never the same. The same went for actor Ed Lauder, who played Captain Knauer. He was a good athlete as well, and he could throw the ball really well playing quarterback for the guards. James Hampton, who played Caretaker, was recommended by Reynolds to be in the film. And originally, he was tabbed to play the part of Unger. But Hampton didn't want that role. He really wanted Caretaker. 
Now, at the time of the script, Caretaker was a very small part, maybe only five lines or so. But as the filming started and the character started to take shape with Hampton, the part grew and grew as Caretaker became a vital part of the film. Younger fans might remember Hampton as Michael J. Fox's dad in Teen Wolf. Now, you will see in the credits a thank you, which says gratitude of Governor Jimmy Carter of Georgia. Carter was very interested in attracting movie productions to the state of Georgia, and he was instrumental in getting The Longest Yard approved to film at the Citrus State Prison. And many of the extras in the film were actual inmates of the prison at the time. As James Hampton put it, he worked with many movie industry folks throughout the years that he liked far less than the prisoners he ended up working with on The Longest Yard, which sounds about right for Hollywood. As I mentioned earlier, there were a number of pro players that are in this film, so I'll go through them. I already mentioned Ray Nitschke. He was a Hall of Fame linebacker for the Packers. He played from 1958 to 1972. Joe Cap was a quarterback at Cal Berkeley, and he started his pro career in the Canadian Football League and then played from 1967 to 69 with the Minnesota Vikings. Of note, he threw seven touchdowns in a regular season game in 1969 and also led the Vikings to the Super Bowl, but they lost to the Chiefs. That was Super Bowl IV, I believe. Ernie Wheelwright was a running back from 1964 to 70 with the New York Giants, the Atlanta Falcons, and the New Orleans Saints. Mike Henry was a linebacker with the Steelers and the Rams from 1959 to 64. Ray Ogden was a wide receiver from 65 to 71 with the St. Louis Cardinals, the Saints, the Falcons, and the Bears. Purvis Atkins was a running back from 1961 to 66 with the Rams, the Redskins, and the Raiders. Sonny Sixkiller, what a great name. He played quarterback at the University of Washington in the early 1970s, and he did play two seasons with the now-defunct World Football League. And Dino Washington, I couldn't find any pro info about him, but he might have been a college player, I believe, but he's definitely one of the athletes. Okay, let's get into the film. So it opens with the sounds of a football game coming from the television. Melissa, played by Nitra Ford, is complaining and very bored with having to watch two games in a row with Paul Crew, Burt Reynolds. Crew couldn't have cared less about what Melissa thinks at this point as they've both been drinking heavily throughout the day. Come on, honey. Oh. Wake up, baby. Oh. Come on. Oh, you know it'd be good. You know it'd be good. Come on, Crew. Get off of me! That son of a bitch. Where the hell do you think you're going? Splitting. Splitting. Mm-hmm. You split what I tell you to split, you all-American son of a bitch. Lovely, lovely. And when you walk out, stay out. You're too expensive to be useless. Whore! That's exactly what you are, a whore. I never looked at it that way before. Everybody's bought you. Colleges, the pros, your gamblers. Who do you think bought those beautiful little caps on your teeth and the clothes that you're wearing and the bloody tan that you've got? Me! Have I ever neglected to thank you, Melissa? Hmm? You has been. Where are your if keys? If I took everything back that I keys? ever gave you, you'd stay away from my keys. You'd be bare-ass naked. Shut up. Where are stay your goddamn keys? Don't you touch my keys. Ow! 
I think the love has gone out of our relationship. Bastard. Don't you take my Maserati. I earned it. I told you not to touch my goddamn car! Well, that didn't go well, and Crew decides to take the car anyway. Melissa calls the police, saying that her car has been stolen, and Crew ends up in a high-speed chase with Leonard Skinner's Saturday Night Special playing on the car stereo, which actually is pretty cool if you think about it, since that song was brand new at the time when this film was released. You can also say this chase scene, which lasts about five minutes, was a very nice precursor to the Smokey and Bandit series a few years later. And of course, you also get the patented Burt Reynolds laugh throughout the chase. Reynolds absolutely loved that car, a specific model of Maserati that was made only that year, and he ended up buying one and gave it to Dinah Shore as a present. So Carew does evade the police initially, and then dumps the Maserati into the river. He later is arrested at a bar, though he doesn't really take anything seriously, making fun of the two officers. They ask Crew why he dumped the car in the river, and he flippantly says because he couldn't find a car wash, which cracks him up, the bartender, and also another one of the officers. Well, the party quickly ends for Crew when he resists arrest and punches one of the officers. Instead of having only a car theft and drunk driving on his rap sheet, they add resisting arrest and assaulting an officer as well. Crew gets 18 months at Citrus State Prison in Georgia. Now, speaking of the beginning scene, Reynolds was very apprehensive about the scene where he grabs Anitra Ford and throws her to the ground. He felt the audience would never forgive him. However, Aldrich assured him that his natural charm as an actor would pull the audience back on his side. And Aldrich was absolutely correct. Plus, it wasn't like the female character was completely innocent, as she did bite him, <laughs> throw a bottle of liquor at his head, and also slapped him before he then reacted. By the way, the actual car was indeed dumped in the river and later sold as the Burt Reynolds car for $7,000. Once he enters prison, one of the guards named Rasmussen, played by Mike Henry, who was the ex-linebacker, he takes great delight in shaving off Burt Reynolds' famous mustache, which he had been given $10,000 a few years earlier for a television promotion. Also, Reynolds says it was actually physically a painful experience getting his mustache shaved off by an electric razor. It was not a fun experience for him. Next, crew meets Captain Knauer, played by Ed Lauder, who believes he runs the prison. He is also the head coach of the prison's semi-pro football team and warns crew not to agree to help coach the team if the warden asks him to. Knauer hits crew hard in the stomach a few times with his baton to make himself clear. Crew then meets the warden, Eddie Albert, who gives this puffed-up speech about the great morals from playing football. He then asks crew what he thinks about semi-pro football to which Crew simply replies that it's a joke. The warden then takes this as an opening to admit that the team could use a coach that was an ex-pro who was also a league MVP, which Crew was. Crew, of course, turns down the warden's offer just like he was told by Knauer. This isn't taken well by the warden who puts Crew on swamp duty. So while Crew waits in the other room outside of the warden's office, he decides to hit on the secretary, Miss Toot, played by Bernadette Peters. Miss Toot has a giant beehive hairdo, to which Crew jokingly asks if she's ever found any spiders in there. Bernadette Peters was mainly known for her stage acting at this point in her career. Unfortunately, Reynolds was friends with her and got her the part as Miss Toot, which was a small but memorable part, as we will find out later. In the meantime, Knauer gets a loud verbal thrashing from the warden saying that if the team doesn't win the championship that season, 
Knauer is fired, and also he better get Crew to be part of the coaching staff. Knauer then decides to beat on Crew some more. So swamp duty entails shoveling the thick mud out and then shoveling it back in. It's completely useless work, but that's the point. It's to break the spirit of the inmates. Also, this is the deep south, and the black inmates are segregated from the white inmates. The guards, as a taunt, call Crew Superstar and decide to punish him by chaining him up with a black inmate named Granville, who goes by the nickname of Granny, played by Harry Caesar. In addition to being berated by the guards, the other inmates don't think much of Crew since he had it all and threw it away, including actually throwing a game due to his gambling problem. Felons have a weird sense of honor. Just ask caretaker James Hampton. Real friendly types you got around here. Might be your own fault. Oh, really? Most of these old boys don't have nothing. Never had nothing to start with. But you, you had it all. Then you let your teammates down, get yourself caught with your hand in the cookie jar. I did, did I? Oh, I ain't saying you did or you didn't. All I'm saying is you could have robbed banks, sold dope, or stole your grandmother's pitching checks, and none of us would have minded. Shaving points off of a football game, man, that's an American. We also meet a few of the guards, who aren't your normal prison guards. As a matter of fact, they're all ex-football players in real life. We already met Rasmussen, and then there's Bogansky, Ray Nitschke, and the walking boss, Joe Cap. The swamp scene is an interesting one and definitely entertaining. One prisoner is constantly doing various exercises in front of crew to show him up, like doing one-arm push-ups and headstands. He doesn't think highly of the superstar. We also meet Pop, John Stedman, and there's a great scene with him and crew, and we get a bit of foreshadowing. Crew mentions that Pop must have been up for parole after 34 years, and Pop casually tells him that he would have been, except he had punched out a guard 30 years prior. And that guard became Warden, Warden Hazen, and because of that, Pop will live out his days in the swamp. The next day, the show-off guy decides to put swamp mud into Crew's boot. This leads to a hilarious and drawn-out scene where they go back and forth putting the mud into each other's boots, with the payoff being when Crew takes a handful of the muck and shoves it down the guy's pants. This leads to an all-out brawl in the swamp. It's such a great scene because it's old-time slapstick. It's like Laurel and Hardy. Plus, the subtle score during the scene is perfect. The two men do end up laughing about it, but once Captain Knauer arrives and puts a stop to it, Knauer tries to hit Crew again with his baton, but Crew grabs it before it hits him and then uses it to hit Knauer in the stomach. So this act of defiance leads Crew to getting put in the box. If you've seen Cool Hand Luke, you know what the box is. And actually, there's a lot of similarities between Cool Hand Luke and The Longest Yard, especially the camaraderie between the inmates and the brutal nature of the guards. Once Crew is released from the box... He has a meeting with the warden while watching the football team practice. The warden says they must win the first game, but he's not sure they're ready. And then Crew casually mentions that the team could have a tune-up exhibition game against a team not as good as theirs. This way, it will give the team some live game work and also boost the morale by kicking the crap out of the other team. Then the warden drops the bomb. Crew must put together a team of prisoners for this game against the guards. Crew declines, saying he just wants to finish his 18 months. The ward reminds him that the 18 months is simply to be up for parole. Crew's actual sentence is two to five years. And considering Crew assaulted Knauer, Crew likely wouldn't be paroled. Crew has four weeks to get the team organized and ready for the game. And not only does Crew have to organize, 
He also has to play and be quarterback of the team. Beating an ex-pro ball player would be the ultimate morale boost for his team in the warden's mind. Also, Crew will get early parole for his compliance, according to the warden. Some of the inmates are eager for the chance to potentially hurt one of the guards in the game. Caretaker also uses another tack, saying if the inmates that play do get hurt, they'll be in the hospital, which is like a vacation for them. However, most of the guys aren't interested in playing, and the black prisoners all refuse to play since they know about Crew throwing a game in the past. Crew meets prisoner Nate Scarborough, played by Michael Conrad, who becomes the head coach of the team due to his past experience as a pro offensive lineman, and he scouted the guard's team for the past seasons. The team recruiting is one of the many hilarious scenes in the film, like Crew going over the prison records of some of the guys they wanted to get on the team. The rap shoot includes guys that have strangled two wives with pantyhose, triple murder, including body dismemberment, and hacked mother with meat cleaver. <laughs> Crew is especially interested in obtaining the medical records of the guards, specifically if they've had any past broken bones, which is a bit of gamesmanship or lack of. Then the in-person recruitment begins. I'd like to play some football. Football. Yeah, would you like that? I mean, we really can hit the guards? But you'd like that, wouldn't you, Sonny? <laughs> Uh, report to the practice field tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. What's his name? Indian. That makes sense. Now don't do any ethnic jokes. Paul Crew. Hi. Hi. Uh, I hear you play some football. A little bit. Ah, good. Where? Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State, you? Prison. Yeah. Well, first thing we got to do is get you transferred out of here and on the football field. How? Well, we'll work on it. <laughs> Uh, pretty heavy? Whoa. About 400 pounds. Pretty heavy. George Sampson, Granada. Mr. Florida, 1964. Uh, ball crew. You know Florida? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they got uh, tough cops here. Small, but tough. Uh, we're getting up a football game against the guards. Wondered if maybe you and uh, some of your buddies here would like to join in on the fun. With the guards? Uh-huh. Sure, I'd like that. Sign him up. I'm way ahead of you. See you around. Look forward to it. Samson, huh? Samson. So Samson is played by the great Richard Keel, you remember as Jaws in the James Bond films, who is an absolute giant at 7 foot 2 inches. Nate tries to explain to Crew that this upcoming game isn't just a game, it's vital for the prisoners to really try to win. But Crew just wants to survive and move on, but Nate knows what the warden is really trying to do. He wants to pulverize the inmates to kill any sort of will they have left. The only way the inmates have a chance 
is to get a good portion of the black players to join the team because many of them have experience playing college or professionally. Crew tries to approach the guys, but with little success. However, Granny signs up to play and tells Crew he'll talk to the guys by himself. The first practice for the inmates is a comedy of errors, like Samson completely dismembering the tackling dummy, to the offensive and defensive lineman drills, which becomes hitting each other literally, and it becomes an all-out brawl. Crew needs a so-called specialist that caretaker said he'd get. One being Connie Schockner, Robert Tesler, who is the most feared prisoner. The guards won't even go near him. He killed five people, which landed him in the joint, and he's killed two more since he's been in prison. And by the way, Tesler in real life was a martial arts expert. You did not want to mess around with this guy no matter what. Crew needs Schockner on the offensive line, and he makes his presence known to Sampson on the field after his meeting with Crew and Caretaker. Hello, Mr. Schockner. You know how to play football? Yeah. Good. Uh, would you like to play football with us inmates? No. Oh. We're going to play the guards. Yeah, I want to play. He wants to play. Thank you, Mr. Schachner. better, doesn't it? 100%? Oh, yeah. It does? Yeah. Yo, he did that on purpose. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. Tell him you... Tell him you're sorry. Please. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, everybody, huddle up, huddle up, let's go. He said he was sorry. Bullshit. Come on, let's huddle up, sorry. let's go. You let's huddle up, let's go. Let's try it again. <laughs> he said he was sorry. <laughs> now, one of the lingering problems is that one of the prison rats named Unger, played by Charles Tyner, is constantly watching the practices and reporting back to Knauer, along with trying to get crew to agree to let him being part of the coaching staff. Unger is a major psycho. He killed five people by burning a house down, and more on that later. So after Unger snitches, giving the guards a scouting report, Knauer tells Rasmussen to taunt Granny in the library, where he works, and to get him to punch a guard and get him thrown off the team. If Granny is thrown off the team, the prisoners would lose one of their best players. But Granny doesn't lose his cool to the racist taunts by Rasmussen, and Rasmussen leaves pissed off. The strategy absolutely backfires on the guards as the rest of the black inmates decide to sign up after watching the incident in the library. Now, the mean machine, as they are now called, have some players to compete with. 
And things start to look more bright for the Mean Machine, as Caretaker has a surprise in store for Crew. In order to get the game film of the guards past games, Crew must perform a personal service with Miss Toot. The Warden's expecting you won't you come this way. Thank you, Captain. Thank you. I'm glad you're not in the swamp anymore. That can ruin a man. Sure can. We don't have a great deal of time. We have 15 minutes. Oh. The game oh. films. Thank you. That's, that's terrific. Like I said, we only have 15 minutes. Oh. Oh. very often? I'm just as far from Tallahassee as you are, honey. <laughs> Short but sweet, the same can be said for the number of scenes with the great Bernadette Peters. With the film now obtained, it's time for some game preparation and strategy. Shagner! Shagner! Yeah. You hit him high like that, he's gonna break your back. Breaks your back. Gonna break the superstar's back. Don't worry about him. I'll get that son of a bitch with an MP. Ready? Set. Ready? Set. Now you take this bandage, you dip it into the plaster of Paris, you wrap it around the cast. And in 15 minutes, it becomes as hard as a rock. You got it? Got it! This is a picture of the walking boss. Yeah! Oh, that's the one <laughs> He once broke his right femur. That's his thigh bone. Maybe you can give him a clip or something. Oh, we'll break yeah. it again. Got it? Got it! All right, we can do it. Can we do it? Gentlemen, what we have here in Carmen parlance is known as a set of brass knuckles. The ball is snapped, and you go into your opponent, go into him blocking him with your left arm, and bring this hand up into his chin, and I'll guarantee you, gentlemen, that he will be incapacitated for the next several moments. You got it? Got it! Okay. All right, men, now here's the play we're going to use. I don't think the guards know this formation. It's called incidental punishment after the ball is blown dead. Remember. Any man you tackle gets an extra elbow, knee, or kick in the mouth. Got it? Got it! And that night, we get a little heart-to-heart and some prison liquor flowing with crew and caretaker. I am, without a doubt, the finest maker of Razor Jack in the entire joint. I'm going to call this batch old caretaker. <laughs> you always keep it in there? Well, that seems like a logical place. Mm-hmm. Listen, let's get through here. Me and me are buddies, ain't we? 
I got you laid. I got you the game film. Mm -hmm. Got you all them monsters. <laughs> Getting you drunk. Mm -hmm. That you are. <laughs> so one thing still bothers me. What's that? Unshave them points. I told you. For the money. No, no, I mean, come on, give me the real reason. If you didn't want to know. I never gave a shit about football or anything else. The only thing I ever care about is my old man. My old man was blind. Never saw me play. Said I've been a professional ever since I was 12 years old. Hustling nickels and dimes, playing pool. Never making enough money to take care of him. I figured when I got in pro ball, I'd make one big killing. One big one. Making up money. Set him up. Take care of him the rest of his life. And the son of a bitch up and died on me. You buy that? Well, that's good because that's bullshit too. Why do you think I uh, shave the points? The money. <laughs> <laughs> One minute to laugh. One minute. You know what my problem's been all my life? No what? I've always had my shit together. Always. My problem's been that I couldn't lift it. <laughs> I gotta go home. be a party pooper. Mm. It's okay. Some pro quarterbacks streak all night long. <laughs> mm, I know. Good night. Good night, Paul. Here, don't you want to take one with you? Lock it up. So Reynolds improvised that last scene. It's partly based on the true story of ex-NFL quarterback Jim Plunkett, who played with the Raiders, Patriots, and 49ers. Both of Plunkett's parents were blind. Crew ended up getting Unger barred from watching the Mean Machines practice. Gnauer took great delight in letting Unger know that it was Crew who made this request to the warden. This also means that Unger will be in the general population, which won't go well for him since he's a rat. So during practice, Unger sneaks into Crew's cell and injects a liquid explosive into the hanging light bulb. Remember that Unger was the pyromaniac who let the house on fire to land him in prison to begin with. After practice, Nate, crew, and caretaker are going over the game plan in Nate's cell. The medical files of the guards are in crew's cell, and caretaker offers to grab them. When caretaker goes to look for the files, he turns on the light, which causes the light bulb to explode. And then caretaker is engulfed in flames. Unger, immediately after caretaker pulled the string, closed the door in the cell, locking him in. Nobody is able to put out the fire, and caretaker is trapped in the cell, and he dies from the fire. The next day after Caretaker's funeral is the game, and the Mean Machine gets a uh, pep talk from the warden. All right, stand up for the warden! 
just so you'll know, we've posted armed guards all along the wall and uh, around the running track there at the public end of the field. So, if any of you are thinking of mingling with the civilians and wandering off with the crowd at the end of the game, we will shoot you. Have a nice game, boys. See you on the field, superstar. Undeterred, Crew has a surprise for the team from Caretaker. Brand new uniforms. And the looks on the faces of the guards and the warden when they realize that they had their own home jersey stolen by the inmates is priceless. Now, some of the modern audiences might notice that Burt Reynolds is wearing number 22 and playing quarterback. Today, almost all quarterbacks are between the numbers of 1 and 19. Usually running backs and defensive backs are in their 20s, though that has changed lately. However, in the early days of pro football, numbers didn't necessarily have the same sort of designations. And one of Burt Reynolds' football heroes growing up was the Detroit Lions quarterback Bobby Lane, who was number 22. Even though the meme machine is totally fired up to start the game, they give up a touchdown on the return of the opening kickoff. However, it's not a total loss as they block the extra point. However, the first play on offense for the meme machine doesn't go well, and Crew is sacked in the end zone for a safety. So now the guards are up 8 to nothing. It's a good time to mention that the gameplay in this film is really well done, especially for an older film. And it's fun watching guys actually take hits, even late ones, Unlike today's football, where if you slightly touch the quarterback after he's thrown the ball, it's considered a roughing penalty. The NFL is now a joke, but I digress. So Burt Reynolds would tell the five camera operators each play before he ran them in order for the camera operators to know exactly where to shoot. And this helped the authenticity a great deal, along with the realistic tackles. The other brilliant part about the cinematography for the game scenes is there aren't a lot of jump cuts. They truly let the wide angles of the actual gameplay play out, just like you would see for an actual game. Today, there would be way too many cuts between scenes, making it jarring and unrealistic. So the meme machine does end up recovering a fumble on defense as the guards were driving for a touchdown. The second quarter starts with a bang for the meme machine as crew completes a deep pass in the center of the field for a long touchdown. For the extra point, instead of kicking it, they fake it and Crew takes a snap and runs in for the extra point, and now it's 8-7 to seven guards. By the way, if you watch that pass that Burt Reynolds throws, it's definitely him throwing a perfect pass, which is in the air for at least 40 yards. Again, authenticity is why this film is terrific. Now that the meme machine is on the scoreboard, it start, <laughs> it's now time to start giving it to the guards. First, the shop steward, Pepper Martin, who plays defense for the Mean Machine, decides to give the walking boss, Joe Cap, a vicious forearm after the play ends, knocking him out. By the way, Pepper Martin, you might remember him for playing the guy who beats up Clark Kent in the roadside diner after he loses his powers in Superman 2. He was a professional wrestler in the 1950s. Next, Samson decides to clothesline tackle the running back going up the middle. Perfectly legal in my book. That Levin comes up the middle again. I'm going to clothesline that side of a bitch. Now's the time to get him, Samson. 4-3, my mouth. 4-3, my mouth. Ready? Break. Hey, hey, hey! Hey, hey, hey! Go! Go to the left! Go to the left! Go to the left! The receiver! Stay in! Oh, my God! 
I think I broke his fucking neck. Two hands go. I think he broke his fucking neck. I told you I broke his fucking neck. I think he broke his fucking neck. I think he broke his fucking neck, too. You have to remember that back in the 1970s, to, especially the early 1970s, to hear F-bombs loosely thrown around in a feature film was pretty rare and risque and hilarious at the same time. But today, it's way overdone, and the effect would be lost. But back then, this was one of the standout scenes for the audiences. Next, the guys take out Captain Knauer, who, in addition to playing quarterback, is also the guard's punter. The Mean Machine gets away with a late hit, and then when the referee's back is turned, they hit Knauer again. With 22 seconds left in the half and the guards are up 15-7, Knauer throws an interception in the flat, and the cornerback for the Mean Machine returns it for a touchdown. But they miss the extra point, and the half ends with the score 15-13 in favor of the guards. Now, the Mean Machine players are ecstatic over their first half performance. Their ecstasy will be short-lived, when the warden pays a visit to crew in the locker room before the second half. Just what the hell do you think you're doing? Well, you wanted a game, you got one. I never said anything about winning. Never said anything about losing, either. I'll spell it out for you. We've got Unger in custody. He's confessed to killing caretaker. What? He said you knew all about it. Well, you didn't notify Captain Knauer, and that makes you an accessory. You're full of crap. Mr. Crew, you sent caretaker to that cell. You are an accessory to murder. You could be looking at 20 years and counting. Bullshit! There's no way in the world you can make that stick in court. No? Mr. Crew. You could be in this institution until you are old and gray, or until you're dead. Whichever comes first, I can promise you that. You're going to lose the game. And I want a 21-point spread. I can't do that! Of course you can. You've done it before. If I give you the 21 points, will you call off the dogs? The dogs? If you got the game in the bag, you tell your guys to coast. I don't want any of my men hurt. You have my word. Once we get to 21 points. You know, there's only one thing I'm sorry about. What's that, Mr. Crew? You're not out there with us, knocking heads. I'm afraid I'm a little too old for that. No. You never had the guts to begin with. Eddie Albert is just perfectly vicious as the warden. And as I always say, without a truly evil performance from the villain, the hero can't shine like they should, and Albert gives a brilliant performance. Okay, what happens in the second half? Will Crew throw the game like he did in the pros? 
Well, the final 30 minutes are thrilling and very well done, and the ending is absolutely perfect. Now, as much as I'm a fan of Adam Sandler and his films, his remake doesn't hold a candle to the original, and nobody was a bigger superstar in the 1970s than Burt Reynolds. Plus, he truly had the football chops he needed for the role. This is definitely my favorite football movie of all time. I will leave you, though, with one of the funniest and most memorable scenes in the second half, Bodansky getting drilled not once, but twice in the nuts. We're going to let Bodansky come right through. Nobody touch that big mother. You got it? I want to try something. I want to try something. Now, if it works, everybody hit him. Right? Right! Split right, all curl on one. Ready? Ready! Great left! Bogdansky is staggering, but he is up. He is up and on his feet. Okay, we got 15. Huddle up on the ball. Come on, let's huddle up. Huddle up. Unbelievable. Come on, get yourself out of here. Come on. I know what I'm doing. Work once. Ought to work again, right? right. All right. One more, one more time. On two. Ready? Alright, some fun facts. The Longest Yard was nominated for an Oscar for Best Film Editing, but it lost to The Towering Inferno. So Sports Illustrated's Rick Tellender wrote in the October 17, 1988 issue that after the cast and crew of The Longest Yard departed from the Georgia State Prison, the inmates played Georgia State Troopers using the equipment left behind by the film crew. The game quickly got out of hand with the inmates pummeling the out-of-shape troopers for their alleged arrogance. And the game was called at the half with the inmates ahead 66 to nothing, which essentially ended prison football in Georgia. Now, Georgia State Penitentiary prisoner Harold Morris, who had been wrongly convicted of murder and was later given a full pardon, had a part in the film as an extra. In his book, which is called Twice Pardon, he recalled some moments with Burt Reynolds, and they included... So although prison officials strongly discouraged it, Reynolds often sat with the prisoners during meal breaks and socialized with them. 
A photographer on set offered to take souvenir photographs for the, of the prisoners, individually posing with Reynolds. And many of the prisoners had no money, but Reynolds told the photographer to take all the pictures the prisoners wanted and Reynolds would pay for them. One of the prisoners asked Reynolds where he lived, and Reynolds had told him that he had homes in Florida and California. The prisoner then asked for his address, and when Reynolds asked why, the prisoner explained that A, he was a career criminal about to finally get out of prison, and B, after spending a life stealing from people who didn't have any money, he finally wanted to burglarize someone who had money. <laughs> So Reynolds and Moore struck up a friendship during the filming. At the end of filming, Reynolds sent personalized autographed photos to several of Morris's relatives. He also gave Morris a Book of the Month Club membership. So one of the offensive linemen on the Mean Machine is Burt Reynolds' brother. So look out for number 65. Reynolds wanted to film the movie in his hometown of West Palm Beach, Florida, but was denied access. Despite this, he refers to it on camera with a sign saying entering West Palm Beach, but it was filmed in Savannah, Georgia, of course. All right, we have the great Stephen Michael from the Grown Up Rock Podcast who joins me to talk about this terrific football movie, and I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. All right, we're back with Grown Up Rock, Stephen Michael. Welcome back, Stephen. The green machine, baby. The mean green machine. <laughs> the green <I'm> here. machine. <laughs> You know, it's interesting that we're recording on a Saturday as I am a college football fan and we're going right. to talk a little bit about football. So uh, let's get to it because, you know, college game day is almost over. My team's playing early today. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, I don't know if you knew or not, but uh, Burt Reynolds was uh, a college football player. He was an FSU Seminole. That's and, right. Uh, I'm sorry for that. Because uh, <laughs> the FSG Seminoles blow, but that's just my personal opinion. Anyway, well, he he also blew out his knee in college, so there there is something to be said about that. And uh, I, I think the key to this film, I mean, obviously, the it's one of the first really well done football movies that didn't seem, you know, they weren't using like stock stock footage. They were actually using, you know, them playing on the field. And I think the the first movie to really kind of do this was mash the original mash. And those football scenes are terrific. And I think longest yard was, was definitely inspired by, by the mash football scenes in that film. And I think getting Burt Reynolds, uh, who was an athlete, it, it was definitely a coup. So watching the game, we'll, we'll get into the movie a little bit later, but watching the, the, the football scenes in particular, if you can remember, do you remember how well done those were? Uh, yeah, vaguely. Uh, um, you know, I've watched them. I've watched that movie so many times over the years. Right. And that time for me, you know, when the movie came out, that harkens back because I was uh, uh, pretty young at the time that movie came out. Was it 74 when that flick came out? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and for whatever reason, I tied movies like that and um, North Dallas 40 yeah, uh, yeah. to a period of time. Now, I don't know what year North Dallas 40 came out, but those were uh, – was long. do you know – was The Longest Yard a rated R movie? Yes, definitely, because of the language. Just uh, for that one yeah. scene alone where he hits him in the nuts and everything, yeah. Right. So that's a big deal for me because at that age, being able to watch rated R movies was a, a big thing. And North Dallas 40, same thing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think they did a good job. I don't know if compared to today's technology, how good it is. But back then, I think uh, absolutely it was a great job. 
Yeah, I think um, for me, who I, I am a, a, a big football fan, watching it, I thought the gameplay was really well done. It didn't seem like, you know, you could tell certain movies if they're, uh, if they do a lot of up close shots or they they have a lot of cuts, you can tell. But there's one scene uh, where Burt Reynolds straight up drops back. They do kind of a panoramic view and he throws a perfect deep ball to the receiver. And you can tell that's real. Like it's not a stunt double. They didn't cut in things. And so for me, I appreciate it. And then, of course, they got real football players at, at the time, like Ray Nitschke and and Joe Cap and, and things like that, which at the time was a huge get. So, uh, yeah, I thought that definitely went um itself to, to most football fans. It's, it's no uh, Keanu Reeves in the replacement. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? Not, a, not as I would consider a, a cinematic gem, but I, that's an enjoyable film for me. I, I was just talking about the football play alone, though. Yeah, when, no, and you're right. It's, it's kind of like in Necessary Roughness in, yeah. in those type of movies, yeah. When bow-legged Keanu drops back and, and lays out the ball, uh, <laughs> not to not to get off track, but I'm sure that Burt Reynolds' play was probably more realistic than Keanu's uh, play. Oh, no doubt. That it'd be like Burt Reynolds trying to play the guitar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, the humor in this. And for me, I love when I first saw this, I saw it on television. So I saw an edited version. But my dad was like, you got to see The Longest Yard because just there's so many great scenes. In it, and it's just a you know, a good movie. And um, forget the gameplay for a second. Do you like prison movies? Because this really is a prison movie. Do you like prison yeah, you like movies uh, by gladiators? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know how to answer this. Uh, uh, no, yeah, I actually do. Um, and one that, that comes to mind immediately when we talk about this kind of context, and it was an absolute favorite of mine uh, early on, was Stir Crazy. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if it's done right, yeah, I, I enjoy them. Yeah. And of course, Shawshank Redemption, even though it's not a comedy, it's, it just, it takes place in a prison. And it's one of the best films of all time. But, you know, if you think about it, Stir Crazy and Longest Yard, very similar in the premise. It's just rodeo, bull riding versus football playing, right? That, exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a war, it's a crappy warden, uh, you know, uh, using his his uh, prisoners uh, to do something that he benefits from. Same thing. Yes, definitely, definitely. And uh, and you speak of the warden. Eddie Albert plays the warden in uh, The Longest Yard, and he's perfect because he is just vicious. I mean, you need, as we always say, you need a great villain for the heroes to to kind of shine through. And what's interesting about The Longest Yard is the heroes are the convicts, which is which is kind of cool. Well, and again. Harken back to this uh, period of time in my life as a young kid, because in the 70s, I mean, I was pretty young. I wasn't even a teenager yet at this point. And my only point of reference for somebody like an Eddie Albert would have been Green Acres. At right. Time. So, you know, seeing Eddie Albert in a vicious role versus Green Acres, kind of like, uh... Well, that just shows that, you know, how you can you, people are he's a great actor because I, you know, later I would he was in um, Roman Holiday with Gregory Peck, where he plays his buddy and he's just kind of happy go lucky fun guy. And he and the first movie I saw him in was Longest Yard. So I always thought of him as this vicious guy. So I got the reverse, you know, right, right, right. Yeah. So are you are you a Burt Reynolds fan? And what are some of your favorite Burt Reynolds films? 
Uh, I'm a huge Burt Reynolds fan. I mean, grow, again, growing up in the 70s, how are you not a Burt Reynolds fan? With right. like, I mean, the obvious, Smokey and the Bandit. I can't yes. tell you how many times I went and saw the original Smokey and the Bandit in the theater and how that was a huge staple of my childhood. Uh, and then, you know, the movie that really nobody talks about, but I absolutely loved was Hooper. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nobody really talks about that flick. I bought it on DVD. I liked it so much. How, you know, uh, Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, John, uh, J. Michael Vinson, yep. you know, not to go off on that movie review, but I really enjoyed uh, Hooper. So, Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> Just a, that's a that's a great movie. So yeah, those are some of my favorite Burt Reynolds movies, and he's done many many more over the years that I love. So yeah, I'm an absolute Burt Reynolds fan. Well, he was kind of a precursor to what happened of the action stars in the in the 80s. The 80s kind of got bigger and more grandiose, but really Burt Reynolds kind of set the foundation of the 70s because he was in a lot of those action shoot 'em up car chase type of films. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a great point, you know, and he was definitely the ladies man, right? The, oh, uh, yeah. That's right. And uh, I even liked him in, uh, I like Cannonball Run, even though it's just ridiculous and it's kind of a, it's a mad, mad world uh, kind of uh, offshoot, but uh, those are fun. Don't care is another staple of my childhood Cannonball Run was. That's right. Absolutely. Um yeah, so we'll 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 get back into the longest yard. Anything you you would like to point out uh, about this? Oh, here's one thing. Did you ever see the remake with Adam Sandler? I did see the remake with Adam Sandler, and my recollection of that was that it was really pretty close to the best as far yeah. as the plot and everything. They didn't stray that far from what the original was, did they? No, not at all. And even Burt Reynolds actually ends up playing. Um, kind of the role of uh, Nate Scarborough. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I thought it was okay. I, I still enjoy the original best. And uh, I like seeing people like um, uh, Ray Nitschke and, yeah. and uh, Richard Keel. Oh, uh, yeah, Jaws. <laughs> who at the time, you know, wasn't Jaws and went on to become Jaws in the James Bond flicks. That's right. So, uh, just just really good character actors there. And uh, again, for me being able to see a rated R movie at such a young age, that's always cool, right? You're always going to remember stuff like that. Well, and then you get Bernadette Peters because really it's a female, uh, lacking females in this film. And so to have Bernadette, Bernadette Peters in there for kind of a quick cameo as the, the secretary was really funny as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoyed. Well, as always, thank you so much, Stephen, and and go go watch your your team right now. <laughs> God, I want to keep you away from that. Woo-hoo, after last weekend, I hope they do a lot better. But yeah, thanks, uh, Brian, for having me once again. Uh, appreciate it as always. Anytime. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com. <laughs>